Our Old Covenant reading for the evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29. We'll be reading through the end of the chapter this evening. You may be wondering why we jumped into the middle of 1 Kings. We'd actually covered the first part of 1 Kings several years ago, uh, up through the life of Solomon. But our session is committed to giving you a balanced diet from Scripture. And uh, we have just looked at one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture as we've studied through Ruth together, and we thought this would balance it out as we look at Ahab and Jezebel. Actually, there's a lot more going on here than just the fact that Ahab and Jezebel are wicked, and we're going to see God at work in astonishing ways, particularly through the prophet Elijah. But that will have to wait until next week. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, the word of the Lord. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. We'll be reading to verse 26 this evening. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. The word of our God. But I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here ends the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning at verse 29, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The steadfast faithfulness of our Lord should bring great comfort to us. In this world, we will have many disappointments, but the Lord will never let us down. Furthermore, because the Lord is always consistent with his own perfect and holy character, we don't need to worry about the shifting sands of culture. The world is changing, but God's word is not, and it will endure forever. Therefore, as the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Beloved, you can take those promises to the bank. Actually, it's a lot better than taking them to the bank because banks, in fact, fail. But the word of our God endures forever. If you build your life upon the word of God, when the storms blow and the rain comes pouring down, your life will stand because you have built it upon the rock. On the other hand, the unchanging nature of God's perfect holy character also brings a sober warning to us. If we trample his holy word underfoot, we will be heaping up wrath for ourselves against the day of wrath, and the consequences of our rebellion will harm those who are around us and will necessarily bring us into condemnation. Exhibit A is King Ahab. Uh, This is one of the many reasons why Ahab is one of the most important kings that the northern tribes will ever have. Uh, When you read through kings, you discover that most of the kings only have a few sentences or maybe a paragraph or two devoted to their lives. There's just enough information for the Lord to say, they were born, they lived, they sinned, Often they walked in the ways of their father, Jeroboam, making it clear that they were unfaithful to God, and then were on to the next king. But Ahab is actually given more than six full chapters in the book of Kings. More time is given Ahab than any other king except for Solomon. Now we rightly think of Ahab and Jezebel as the epitome of evil, but we're going to discover in the coming weeks But the Lord was doing a lot more through Ahab's reign, or during Ahab's reign, than pointing out what a wicked king looked like. Uh, This evening, we're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, money isn't everything. Second, flaunting the Shema. 
And third, two monuments, one lesson. Let me give those to you again. First, money isn't everything. Second, flaunting the Shema. And third, two monuments, one lesson. We begin with an obvious truth, and and that's a truth that all of us know, and yet sometimes even Christians forget, and that's that money is not everything. Look at verse 29 with me. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now, we come to this passage already knowing a, a fair amount about the story. In fact, Ahab has become so infamous that even outside of Christian circles, the names of Ahaz, Ahab, and Jezebel conjure up images of distinctly wicked people. We might wonder what it was like to live under the grip of such evil rulers, but we ought to slow down just a little bit before we rush to any conclusions. First, we should note that there is not a single instance, let me say that again, there is not a single instance in all of the Old Testament where the people of God were good and God gave them wicked rulers. There's not a single instance of that happening. The Lord in his mercy only sent wicked rulers when the people themselves were wicked. Now, we cannot draw a straight line from ancient Israel, which is God's covenant people, to the United States, but perhaps that's something we ought to think about a little bit in our own national life. As Americans, we tend to blame the political class while giving the citizens a free pass. And yet, perhaps the reason why our national politics is such a mess is because large swaths of the American people are living in open rebellion against Almighty God. Uh, At least one of the candidates running for president right now uh, happens to like the slogan of saying, we're going to give the American people a government that is as good as they are. Uh, Well, you know, politicians like to flatter the voters, so that's not really a surprise. But here's a sobering thing to consider. Perhaps God already has, but the government we have right now is at least as good as we deserve. Perhaps what our nation really needs is not better politicians, but genuine repentance. Now that said, there's nothing wrong with longing for a better political class, and we ought to pray to the Lord, in your judgment, Lord, have mercy upon us, and give us rulers that are better than we deserve. But it'd be wise for us not to flatter ourselves and think that God hasn't already done that. Second, we should not imagine that Ahab was an unpopular monarch. You know, we all know how wicked he was and how wicked Jezebel was, and that would be an easy step to take. But it turns out there's no evidence of that at all. In fact, it appears that Ahab was a rather popular ruler. Unlike with many other kings, there is no account at all of people seeking to have a coup attempt against Ahab. Furthermore, on a macroeconomic level, Ahab's reign was marked out by stability, prosperity, and growing international influence. Uh, In the Assyrian records, the House of Omri 
and, and Ahab in particular, are mentioned at great length because Israel under their rule is expanding its influence throughout the ancient Middle East. While there are always people who are unhappy with whoever is in power, it really does appear that Ahab was a popular king. I wonder how many of you can recall um, Secretary Clinton running for president. But you know, when she's running for president, she had an obvious issue she had to be able to deal with, and that was the presidency of her husband from 1992 uh, to 2000. And so Secretary Clinton came up with a particular way of trying to frame the presidency of her husband, and she summed it up in one rhetorical question. What was it that you did not like about the Clinton years? Was it the peace or the prosperity? And she simply repeated that over and over again. One of the interesting things I've discovered is um, some Trump supporters are now using that very same line about President Trump. What did you not like about the Trump years? Was it the peace or the prosperity? And I want to suggest that Ahab would have approved that message. See, the affluence of the northern tribes is probably what led to him being rather popular. People like having um, their wealth grow. But as we see throughout the Bible, and I think even if we simply reflect enough on our own lives, money is not everything. During the more than two decades of Ahab's reign, Israel was far wealthier and far more politically important than the nation of Judah in the south. But that, of course, is not the end of the story. Whether we are thinking of our national life or our own individual circumstances, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ still stand. Life does not consist in a mere abundance of things. So Jesus told this parable to make that point. Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. That's striking one word, fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, we know that the northern tribes of Israel prospered financially during the reign of King Ahab, but what was Ahab's relationship with God and what did King Ahab's reign ultimately accomplish for the people of Israel? Look at verse 30 with me. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That is a sobering verdict to hear pronounced over anyone's life. I call this section flaunting the Shema because that is precisely what Ahab did. Deuteronomy 6.4, commonly known as the Shema, which just means here, right? it's an imperative of here, 
Deuteronomy 6.4, commonly known as the Shema, says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's at the very heart of Jewish life. By the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, faithful Jews would pray this at least three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the Shema actually has two thrusts to it, not just one. The first, of course, is that the Lord God, Yahweh, is the only true living God. And therefore, you ought not to be bowing down to those things that are not gods at all. But the second aspect of the Shema is about exclusive loyalty, right? You're to worship this God and this God alone. Yet here is the king of Israel leading the people to trample the Shema underfoot and to offer worship to gods and goddesses that do not even exist. Jeroboam had infamously set up golden calves for Israel to worship. Uh, I shouldn't point out that this is one of those examples of the blind irrationality of sin. You know, sometimes people talk about faith as though it's a leap into the dark, which isn't true. Faith is a step into the light. It's trusting the God who has revealed himself faithfully in Jesus Christ. But actually, it is sin that is utterly irrational, and sin blinds people to what they're doing. Everybody in Israel would have known one of the most dramatic instances of sin that the people of God had ever committed. While Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, one of which, by the way, was, Thou shalt not make a graven image, Aaron was down at the base of the mountain making a graven image. He he was making a golden calf. The people were going, we don't know about this Moses. And you know what they say when the calf is made? These are your gods, O Israel, who have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, the thing for you to realize is that was not an attempt to substitute a god for Yahweh. It was an attempt to worship the true god, Yahweh, in a wrong way, through a calf, through this image. And everyone in Israel knew how bad that was. Everybody in Israel knew that God had brought judgment upon Israel, right? Thousands of Israelites are killed because of this sin. And then we come to Jeroboam. Jeroboam knows the story. But Jeroboam is so blinded by concern that if people in the northern tribes go down to the place where God has set his name in Jerusalem and worship the true God there, but their loyalties are going to be led after the son of a David. Right? One of David's descendants. And the loyalty to him is going to slip away. He says, I don't want that. I want them to worship here in Israel. So Aaron made one golden calf, and Jeroboam says, okay, I'll make two. You understand how wicked that is? But also, how foolish it is. He already knew God's verdict on it. And he said, I'm going to do it anyway. What you see with subsequent kings is they're regularly described as walking in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Because they continue to propagate this worship of the true God in a false way. And then we come to Ahab and we're told this. That Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Ahab was the worst of the worst. And what made him so wicked? Look at verses 31 through 33 with me. 
See how he goes far beyond Jeroboam. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What made Ahab so wicked? For him, walking in the way of Jeroboam was a trifling thing to do. Right? Simply leading Israel to worship the true God in a wrong way, that was no big deal at all to him. Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now on the peace and prosperity front, this might have seemed like a good move. Uh, the way that kings in the ancient Near East tended to make treaties is families intermarried. right? And so by taking the daughter of the Sidonian king as his wife, he's creating a treaty bond. And this had economic consequences. Now Israel can trade through Phoenician ports. It's going to help them get wealthier. Israelite goods now had access to ports via Phoenician seamanship. The alliance profited both countries. The economy was booming. As Dale Ralph Davis says, in light of that, who could complain? But did you catch the name of Jezebel's father? His name is Eth Baal. He is identified as a Baal worshiper, as is his daughter. Not only was Ahab fine with that, Ahab begins to worship Baal himself. Here's something you might not realize because you get used to idolatry as you read through the kings. This is the very first time in the book of Kings that Baal is mentioned. See, up to this time, the problem in Israel is they're worshiping the true God in a wrong way or they're not paying enough attention to him. But Ahab actually brings pagan Baal worship into Israel. It's jarring how fully Ahab gave himself over to this idolatry. We're told Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. Ahab erected an altar to Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Now, now given that most of you probably were not reading the Baal cycle and thinking about Canaanite pagan religion this week, it might help for you, for me, just to give you just a little bit of what's going on. Uh, Baal was an ancient Semitic, well, false god, of course, but ancient Semitic storm god. He was the deity of rain, of lightning, and of thunder. Uh, I want to encourage you to tuck that one away, because when the Lord sends famine on the land and holds out rain for three years, that is a direct assault on the idea that Baal is the god of rain. Actually, it's also an assault on the idea that he's the god of lightning because Elijah is able to call down fire from heaven and the Lord sends fire when Baal, of course, since he is no god, does nothing of the kind. Nevertheless, Baal is not simply the name of the Canaanite god, like the same god by a different name. For the Canaanites, like nearly all pagans, were polytheistic. 
They believed in a god of the sea named Yam, the consort of El named Asherah, and so on. And Ahab went full pagan here, and he embraced this polytheism. He not only worshipped Baal and erected an altar and a temple for him, Ahab also erected an Asherah. Um, The Asherim, just the plural of Asherah, the Asherim were associated at first with the Canaanite goddess Asherah. But later it seems that that term was just used for any sort of devotion to the feminine aspects of deity or to a female goddess in general. There does seem to be some variety within an acceptable range of what the Asherah looked like. Uh, Sometimes they were supposedly sacred trees and groves. Sometimes they were poles that were set up. You can see the connection with trees. But the key thing for you to get Every single time you hear Asherah or Asherim mentioned in the Bible are these two things. First, this is a token of pagan idolatry to a female deity. And secondly, you ought to think polytheism. You ought to think both of those things. Now, in some ways, Ahab followed Solomon's rather bad example by marrying foreign wives as a way of creating treaties. But in some ways, Ahab is the anti-Solomon. Solomon, after all, builds the Lord's house in Jerusalem. Ahab builds Baal's house in Samaria. It's an astonishingly wicked thing for him to do. And while it does seem that Ahab embraced Baal worship with a personal zeal, not saying that's a good thing, there may also be economic and political reasons for what he did. Uh, Many commentators have pointed out that turning Samaria into a pluralistic city was actually pretty good for him in terms of his kingdom and maybe perhaps even budding empire. Um, The idea, of course, is is if you're exclusive Yahweh worshipers, it's kind of hard to get the Canaanites that are part of the land there to get them united under your monarchy. But But if you embrace religious pluralism then the one thing that will hold the people together is Ahab the king. Some Canaanite worshipers, some Yahweh worshipers, as long as they all follow Ahab, that's what he's looking for. Uh, You might think of a slogan like this, everyone is welcome in Ahab's kingdom. Uh, Isn't that a great message for a very ambitious king to have? Everyone's welcome here, right? Now, living in a pluralistic nation ourselves, it is not hard for us to grasp the appeal of having people practice multiple religions side by side with one another. We have to remind ourselves, however, that Israel was not simply another nation among nations. They were covenanted to God. They belonged to God as his own special treasured possession. They had no business allowing for polytheism. Furthermore, We can see something in Ahab's policies, which is very much still an issue in our own day that every one of you needs to confront. Tolerance in polytheism is only tolerance for other polytheists. Let me say that again, see if you get your mind wrapped around that. Tolerance in polytheism, or in relativism as well, which goes together, but tolerance in polytheism is only tolerance for other polytheists. Worshiping Yahweh is fine 
so long as you don't insist on worshiping Yahweh alone. But of course, worshiping Yahweh alone is the whole point of the Torah, as summarized in the Shema. That's why I call this section flaunting the Shema. Oh, by the way, Jesus teaches us the same thing about that importance of uh, serving only the Lord in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, as Kierkegaard has pointed out, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not saying those who go through life just having butterfly-like thoughts and only thinking clean things all the time. Purity of heart in the Beatitudes has to do with being single-minded, an undivided loyalty to the Lord your God. That's what the purity is, undivided loyalty to the Lord our God. It is to be singularly focused on the Lord and on the kingdom of God without any division in our inward loyalties. As Gary Inrig points out, this insistence on full devotion to Yahweh is deeply offensive deeply offensive to polytheists and relativists alike. Pastor Enrig writes this, the insistence of the Lord that he alone was the true God and that he only was to be worshipped, served, and obeyed was intolerable to Jezebel. We can say Ahab as well. She hated the God of Moses and Elijah, the one who insisted on exclusive loyalty the names of the gods have changed, but this is the central issue of our time. Everyone is happy as long as we speak of spirituality and a generic deity. But when we insist on the finality of Jesus' claims, such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, battle lines are drawn. Ahab and Jezebel went into this battle as king and queen, and they felt quite confident that they would prevail. They felt confident in their ability to impose their will upon the entire nation. But they would eventually discover that there is a God in heaven who alone does what he pleases, and that fighting against the Lord is a battle that they were doomed to lose. Well, that'll take some time. We sometimes speak of people breaking the law of God, but as the events of Ahab's reign make clear, when we transgress the law of God instead of us breaking the law, it is the law of God that breaks us. We will see this more fully, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Tonight we have a graphic illustration of just how corrupt the people had become during the time of Ahab's reign. Now we're not told here whether or not Hiel was in any way influenced by Ahab, or is this an independent bit of corruption? But it is a way of making clear just how bad things had become during Ahab's reign, how just God's judgment upon them was, and how astonishingly gracious the Lord was to send him his word to his prophet Elijah to call his people to return to him. It is likely that rebuilding Bethel had at least the support of Ahab. It was, after all, an important strategic place. Uh, if Ahab had been rebuilt as a fortress, that would help protect the borders of his kingdom and perhaps even help project power 
out and beyond. From a purely fleshly way of looking at the world, rebuilding Jericho as a fortified city would have made Ahab's kingdom even more secure. The only problem was this. When the Lord dramatically destroyed Jericho, when he first brings his people into the promised land, causing the walls to miraculously fall down, the Lord had determined that he wanted that to be a permanent monument to the extraordinary thing he had done. So Joshua, the son of Nun, gives the word of the Lord as a curse upon anyone who would rebuild the city. But they would rebuild these fortifications at the cost of their firstborn son's life, and that they would hang the gates of the door at the cost of their youngest son. The Lord wanted the ruins of Jericho to serve as a perpetual reminder of the astonishing thing that he had done. And he had given his word to Joshua, not only the leader of the nation, but also a prophet, to seal this. For centuries, the fallen walls of Jericho lay shattered on the ground out of solemn respect for the word which the Lord had spoken through Joshua. Yet in the days of King Ahab, people became quite comfortable with just crassly disregarding what God had said. Perhaps they didn't even feel, perhaps they did this even with royal approval. Look at verse 34 with me. In his days, that is in the days of King Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. As Walter Meyer points out, verse 34 might at first glance look like it's out of place, more like an odd tack-on to the introduction to the reign of Ahab. However, further consideration results in the recognition of the appropriateness of the verse at this juncture in history. The author provides an example of the awful influence of Ahab and the influence that he had on the members of the northern kingdom and why the ministry of Elijah was so necessary. Hillel of Bethel built Jericho in blatant defiance and utter disregard and disrespect for Yahweh and his word. Yet Hillel undertook this very enterprise revealing a heart which had reached a frightening level of corruption during the reign of Ahab. Now, one would have thought that the death of his firstborn son would have woken him up, would have led him to at least something like repentance, or maybe even not a full fear of the Lord, but a fear of, there's something to this, I'd better stop. But Hillel kept pressing on until he finished rebuilding the fortifications at the cost of his youngest son. This is an example of arrogant and stubborn rebellion against Almighty God and total disbelief of God's word. And in that disbelief, Hillel pressed on with the building. Eventually, he installed the gates of Jericho at the cost of the life of his youngest son. Now, Hillel was undoubtedly thinking, at least in part, that rebuilding this great city would be a monument to himself 
But it turns out that the monument of the city is two tombs that lay outside its walls. Two monuments, one message. God will not be mocked. The word of the God, the word of the Lord God of the universe came to pass. God will not be mocked. Now let me suggest that this is perhaps not the type of story you want to read to your children before they go to bed at night. right? This is a pretty brutal story out of God's word. Nevertheless, the story highlights the astonishing level of corruption and rebellion that were taking place under Ahab's reign. This background will help us grasp both the full justice of God's judgment, but also the astonishing grace of God sending his word and his prophet Elijah to call his people to turn back to him, to trusting and loving the only true God. And yet there is good news for us in this passage that comes directly from the horrible judgment experienced by Hillel and by his two sons. God's word from centuries earlier proved absolutely faithful and unshakably true. As the Apostle Paul would put it nearly a millennium later, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, for those who remain hardened in their faithlessness toward God, that's really bad news. Jonathan Edwards actually said that God's unchanging nature was the thing that people hated most about God other than his holiness if they remained unbelievers because it meant there was no hope for them at all of ever escaping. And I believe he was right. For those who remained hardened in their rebellion against the Lord, the unchanging nature of our Lord's holy character is in fact tragically bad news. Those who remain faithless towards God to the end will discover that he is perfectly faithful in pouring out his just judgment upon them forever. But for those of us who are being saved, who by his grace have come to place our trust in Jesus Christ, for us, the unfailing faithfulness of our God guarantees a glorious truth. They who hope in the Lord will never be put to shame. Amen.